And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. And welcome, everybody, in Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virtual Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. It's great to be with you today. And, uh, hey, welcome to the show. And it is October 31st, better known as Reformation Day. Ah, you thought I was going to say Halloween. Well, no, it's uh, Reformation Day and Halloween because October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, and hence uh, started the Protestant Reformation. And today, we have Halloween. <laughs> you, you can draw from that whatever you want to think. Uh, I, it always struck me as kind of odd, you know, uh, that, uh, that the, uh, you know, uh, Reformation Day would be celebrated with such weird, what's going into a really weird, twisted celebration. Uh, there's lots of innocent stuff, too, but there's also a lot of weird stuff to it. So what's the good and what's the bad when it comes to Halloween? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today on Hands-On Apologetics. We're going to have good friend William Albrecht come on the show. And uh, William Albrecht's going to give us the background of all Saints Eve, otherwise known as All Hell's Eve, otherwise known as Halloween. And so that's coming up on the other side of the break. On this side of the break, we're going to do what we always do. We are going to do our Finding the Felsey, and we're going to meet an early church father. Today's Finding the Felsey is quoting out of context. Very, very important felsey that is... Alive and well, especially in the field of apologetics. So I think every defender of the faith ought to be familiar with this fallacy. Also, we're going to meet an early church father. Today's early church father certainly isn't a household name by any stretch of the imagination. But nevertheless, he is an important figure in history. And uh, actually, it's not so much him as much as a document that he signed. And the name of this person is Laporius. And the document he signed is the Document of Amendment. So we'll we'll give you the background on both Laporius and the Document of Amendment and why it's important. But before we do all that, I want to welcome all of you to the show. So welcome aboard, all you live stream peeps, and of course all of you listening on radio around the country. And lest I forget, all of you listening and watching on podcasts around the internet and also, perhaps just hearing us through podcasts. It's great to have you with us. As you know, it's a live radio show, but we also live stream it, and we also record it and broadcast it as a podcast as well, which is really fortunate because, you know what, maybe you want to know the background to All Saints Eve or Halloween, but you can't listen to the whole program. Well, guess what? Just go to virtualmostpowerfulradio.org, click on Hands-On Apologetics or any of the other great shows that Virgin Most Powerful produces, and you'll have all our shows up there, including this one, and you can listen to William Albrecht's breakdown of All Saints' Eve and kind of sort through the, the um, what's true and good and beautiful and lovely and what isn't 
good and true and beautiful and lovely about this. A very interesting day. Um, also, I want to give you my official dojo mailbox. If you'd like to get a hold of me, this is to do so, folks. It is questions at handsonapologetics.com. That's right, handsonapologetics.com. Questions at handsonapologetics.com. By the way, handsonapologetics.com is my own website, just FYI. And um, I do get your emails, and I do appreciate your comments. So, all right. Well, let's go to our finding the fallacy. Today's finding the fallacy is the quoting out of context fallacy. You know, quoting out of context, sometimes referred to as contextomy or uh, quote mining, is an informal fallacy in which a passage is removed from the surrounding matter in such a way as to distort its intended meaning. In other words, boy, this is done especially with the Bible, but it's done in other fields as well, early church fathers, things like that. And what is it? It's simply pulling out the words of somebody, removing it from its original context and meaning that it was given originally, and placing it and interpreting it in a foreign context. Okay? So, this is something, like I said, is used a lot when you're defending faith. It's used a lot by anti-Catholics. And unfortunately, sometimes it's even used by defenders of the faith that should know better. Okay? So, never quote a, a, a text out context. Always read the context. Make sure that what you think these words are saying actually were meant to say. Because... Now, this is, this is what's important for the Bible. People will use biblical words divorced from their original meaning by quoting on context. So it, it's something that's like bread and butter, not only for those who uh, attack the Catholic faith, but even with religious sermons and so on. They'll pull out words and they'll sound biblical because they're using the words from the Bible but they're divorcing it from the context, the surrounding context. And therefore, you can make the Bible say or teach anything you want if you ignore context, right? You can just pick and choose different words, stitch them together to make them teach anything. And that's why here's a, your apologetic hack for today's Finding the Fallacy. Is whenever somebody cites a verse, okay, or anything else, but, you know, for the Bible, if they cite, a, if they quote a verse, if you're not already familiar with the context, go to that verse, read a few verses early, uh, you know, before it, and read through it, and then read a few verses later, and then ask yourself a very simple question: Is what my opponent's saying, is that really what is being taught here in the context that's given? Okay, because if you don't. You can make the words of Scripture say anything. And that's very dangerous. So, um, yeah, there, in fact, there's even a saying, you know, a text taken out of context can become a pretext. So you don't want to do that, right? You always want to look at um, the context. In fact, that's something I do even when, occasionally on live radio. I'll, I'll field questions and somebody will quote a verse and while they're quoting a verse, real quickly, I'll look up that verse and study in context if I'm not already familiar with the context. 
and make sure that they are not pulling out because oddly enough, I mean, this might sound bizarre, but I would say when it comes to anti-Catholic objections, it's certainly within the 80, 90 plus percentile. Uh, that's usually the problem. They're quoting a text out of context. The words seem to be damning, and if they're taken out of the context, they, they seem to be damning. But once you read it in context, you find out that's not the intent of the divine author. And, uh, yeah, so there you go. That's our Finding the Fallacy for today. Quoting out of context, Fallacy. Let's meet our early church father. Like I said, not exactly a household name. Um, in fact, I think probably most people never heard of Laporius, but yes, Laporius is our church father for today. He was a monk in Gaul, which is modern-day France, in the Diocese of Treves, when, because of his heretical doctrines, he was obliged to leave the monastery to become a homeless wanderer. So he became homeless, kicked out of his monastery for heretical beliefs. In his journey, he, it brought him to Africa, where he met the great St. Augustine, Dr. Hippo, who cured him of his heretical tendencies. So, uh, like I said, Laporius in himself is not so important as much as once St. Augustine's able to turn him in the right direction, what he does afterwards. Because it's at the Council of Carthage of an uncertain date, probably the council that met in 426. By the way, Carthage had a lot of local councils. Laporius submitted to a profession of his now Reformed faith, and this is known as the uh, Document of Amendment of Laporius. Uh, it was forwarded to the Fathers of Carthage, Bishop Aurelius, Augustus, or excuse me, Augustine, Florentinus, and Secundius, uh, and the Bishops of Gaul, along with a cover letter. The Document of Amendment. Um, uh, oh, excuse me. It, it, the, uh, the, the whole thing was known as the letters of the bishops of Africa and to the bishops of Gaul. I had to translate on Latin on the fly. And uh, it recommends the now orthodox and properly chastened Laporius. And in this amendment, uh, it is evident that Laporius's former errors were in the area of Christology. He actually held a kind of Nestorianism in advance of Nestorius believing that there were in Christ not just two natures inseparably united to one person, but two distinct persons, a human and divine. According to Gassian and Grenadinus, uh, he also forswore uh, Pelagianism, and it's no great importance in itself, but revised somewhat by Augustine, no doubt, uh, this document of amendment, uh, achieved a certain prominence in celebrity as a monument of Christology. So, Laporius, that, that's interesting. You know, God uses this this uh, monk who uh, kind of went off the rails in terms of theology, knowing that when he repented under the tutelage of the great St. Augustine, that uh, he had produced this document that Christians there on out would look at as a, a monument to Christology. So, Really cool stuff. And that is our early church father for today, Laporius. Coming up next, we have a good friend, William Albrecht, with us. And we're going to be talking about Halloween. More to come right after this. You listen to Hands On Apologetics.
Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetic. Well, it is All Hell's Eve, that is All Saints Day Eve, also known as Halloween. And uh, like I said in the introduction to the show, uh, there's a lot of good involved in Halloween and a lot of distortions also. So to help us separate the good from the bad, we have a good friend, William Albrecht, with us. William, as you know, is the purveyor of patristicpillars.com. He's also a co-host with me and David Zavaris on Apocrypha Apocalypse on YouTube. He's uh, co-authored several books in apologetics, cutting-edge books that uh, really anyone serious defending the faith needs to have on their bookshelf, everything from Mary uh, the canon, transubstantiation, you name it. And him and Father Cap is just cranking out the gold in terms of written uh, material. He's also has debated live um, more than 50 opponents uh, on various topics and also from various religious perspectives. And William Albrecht, welcome back to Hands-On Apologetics. Gary, thrilled to be here with you. Very happy to be able to really talk about Halloween and to talk about maybe, you know, kind of dispelling those really bad perceptions that people may have for the holiday, uh, I can tell you right now that it's <clears throat> definitely a wonderful, wonderful holiday. Now, when do we celebrate it? Clearly tomorrow. Today is the even, the evening, All Hallows evening before that wonderful holy day. Now, have certain secular or liberal media individuals distorted it, as with everything, even when they secularize and commercialize Christmas, everything. But as Catholics, we don't stop celebrating holy days or scrap them merely because people begin to distort the truth. Indeed, what we're going to look at today, we're going to have a great time talking about the roots of Halloween the historical roots today, and then talking about the importance of All Saints Day and All Souls Day as well tomorrow. But really, Gary, I think the amazing thing is to immediately realize, look, we know that there are people out there that want to distort the truth, that want to glorify evil, that want to dress up as maybe evil figures and really distort the message of Christ. But what what is our goal? Our goal is to glorify God and to recognize that this is a holy day, a wonderful day. And indeed, do not bend the knee to liberalism or to secularism. That is, and, and, you know, I can't emphasize it enough. You've written an incredible book on this particular topic and how the secular and liberal world is really just trying to hammer down on us. And, you know, Gary, I got to be very honest. We've, we've got to be very careful. We have to be on the lookout. But not scrap our holy days merely because bad people have distorted what they truly, truly, truly do stand for. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, you know, um, bringing up uh, history, um, you know, it was Christians that displaced uh, pagan holidays and replaced it with holy days. Yeah. And, you know, and now it's, uh, the the course has been changed, and now holy yeah. days are being, uh, tr they're trying to stomp them out with their own secular, you know, meaningless holidays yeah and yeah it's such a i think there's a, a temptation on the part of good solid catholics to scrap yeah you know uh you know any kind of celebration because of what secularism does 
But, you know, there's we got to instead use it to proclaim the true good roots of All Saints Day and All Saints Day Eve, right? Gary, without a doubt, and I really want to, and I know uh, you, you always, uh, you never tell me ahead of time, but I need to put a plug in for your incredible book, Revolt Against Reality. If people want to know what is going on during these times right now, get a hold of that incredible book that Gary wrote. We need to, we cannot bend the knee to liberalism. And indeed, Gary, this is a wonderful holiday. You know, if you stop and think about it, this is an incredible holiday. And if we go to the biblical roots of what are festivals. God tells Moses in the Bible that festivals are holy. They are pleasing and sacred to Almighty God. What we do when we have a festival is we honor God. If we are going to honor God's creation, especially those incredible saints and ask for their intercession, if we're gonna honor God's creation, ultimately all honor and glory goes to God. It's very, very clear. And where do we get the basis of having a festival dedicated to the Lord? You get it directly from the Bible. You get it all over the Bible. And as we're going to really dive in here, that is why I love being on with you every time we get together. We, I love nerding out. I love nerding out. We're going to get to the meat and potatoes. We're going to go with the. We're going to look at the Bible, uh, early church fathers, and. Uh, the audience, you're going to have to stick around because we're going to talk about actual documentation that shows us when was the very first time that Halloween was celebrated on these particular days. And I'm, you know, Gary, I'm really thrilled because a lot of the times when we break it down like this, our evangelical friends will then kind of lower their guard and say, okay, you know, I can recognize what you're talking about there. And indeed, every year I dress up. Now, I don't dress up as a vampire or a demon or a ghoul, every year I dress up as my favorite saint, Blessed Dun Scotus, in my opinion, the greatest Mariologist of all time. So there is a healthy way of dressing up, of going trick-or-treating, of giving all honor to God and having fun without glorifying evil. And that is not what we do here within Catholicism. We do not glorify evil. Rather, we glorify him who crushed the head of the serpent, and he who defeated death, that is what we are glorifying. And when we honor those incredible saints who, as we're told in 1 Corinthians 9, 7, who have finished their race and have their crown, all glory goes to God, doesn't it, Gary? That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, William, I don't know if you caught the beginning of the show, but Halloween's also Reformation Day. Yeah. Right? Yep. And, and if you is. think about you think about it, uh, Luther nailed the 95 Thesis on All Saints' Eve, probably because a lot of more people would see it the following day, right, yeah. and see the 95 Thesis is more public. So he, he himself was kind of like uh, using the Holy Day to promote uh, his own agenda, I guess. No, no doubt. You are 100% correct. Not only that, I think at times people will look at that and tell other Catholics, hey, we are celebrating Reformation Day. Today, we, we really are standing against the doctrine of purgatory, of prayer for the dead. Well, I, I hate to break their bubble, but if they actually read what Luther hammered to the door of the church in Wittenberg, they will read that Luther didn't deny purgatory there. Yeah, right. Luther, I mean, so really, 
the idea of, of standing up against purgatory. Uh, no, Luther defended purgatory. What he was against, as you know very well, Gary, was against particular abuses. So, no, I think people need to read that 95 thesis. They will find it really is not representative of modern-day Protestantism, is it, Gary? No, not at all. Not at all. Okay, so— um... Yeah. So, how do you want to address this, William? I mean, there's yeah, all sorts know, of points we can we can start with. You know, I like beginning right in the book of Leviticus because the Lord tells Moses, "Speak to the people of Israel and tell them these are the appointed festivals of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations, my appointed festivals." Why do we begin? by pointing out that there are holy feast days, holy festivals, to show you that church has had the practice of feast days throughout the beginning. The solemnity of festivals was made all the more evident when we look in the New Testament. Matthew 26, 5 and Mark 14, 2. We are told to avoid strife so as to not cause trouble when? During a festival, we're told. But they were saying, not during the festival, lest a riot occur among the people. In Mark 14, 2, for they were saying not during the festival. The Bible is very, very clear. Not only did the ancient Jews have feast days dedicated to the Lord, but the early Christians did as well. St. Paul was very clear about that. And we are laying the groundwork on early feast days because then we're going to move on to the early feast day of Halloween or of All Saints Day, but we lay the groundwork. Why do we lay it, lay it? We lay it because it's importantly in the Bible. If our evangelical friends want the very principle of having a feast day, you have it in the Bible. Paul tells you in Colossians 2, therefore, do not let anyone condemn you in matters of food, drink, or observing festivals. And he tells you, these are a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. I think the most important thing here to really point out is when Paul tells you the substance is pointing towards the Lord, that is what makes the festival holy in the eyes of the Lord. And we want to be very, very clear. What do we mean by Halloween? As you talked about it earlier, it is the evening, all hollows even, all hollows evening before when? before a holy day, before All Saints Day. And I'll tell you one thing, when you're in Texas, near the border, the Latin American culture, they love celebrating these days. But I can tell you one thing, Gary, none of them dress up glorifying evil. They dress up either as relatives of old in, in, in a beautiful cultural garb, or they will dress up as Holy Mary, or as the incredible Saint Joseph, all of it is done to give glory to God, and they also do it to remember their departed loved ones. And what other biblical model do we have? Second Maccabees 12 is very clear, shows you that it is a holy and a pious thought to pray for the dead. Now, Gary, if we realize and recognize that all of this is true, then what problem should we have? We should not have a problem with having a feast day dedicated to the saints of the Lord, All Saints Day. If there were all other kinds of festivals throughout ancient Judaism, throughout ancient Christianity, why not an All Saints Day? And we're going to realize and we're going to find that indeed 
there is an early origin to having feast days, festivals dedicated to the saints. Yeah, yeah, very good. Um, and I think that really sets the table for our discussion. So it, it's not something artificial. It isn't something that was kind of dreamt up from the, you know, the medieval church or something like that. Right. This is rooted in Judaism, and it's rooted in Christianity as well from the very beginning, that uh, that you would honor the Lord not only in sacred space, but sacred time as well. Yeah, without a doubt. And we're going to eventually get to a time in history very early on where we realize that the early church had a particular model set up. There were festivals, feast days, where there were things that were celebrated, whether it be the Nativity of Holy Mary— the birth of our Lord, or all kinds of things. But we're going to reach a point in time as well where there are festivals of those that have died, that have gone to glory with the Lord. And we're going to eventually realize that early on that they began slowly and then became pretty much universal feast days all over the Catholic world. But the audience are going to have to stick around to hear what we're talking about. Absolutely. We're chatting with William Albrecht of TristicPillars.com, and we're talking about the background of All Saints Day and All Saints Eve. More to come right after this. You're listening to Hands On Apologetics. Stay tuned. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody, to uh, Hands-On Apologetics. We're chatting with William Albrecht of PatristicPillars.com, talking about Halloween and its biblical historical roots and separating the good from the bad. And so, William, uh, I'll just let you take it away. Yeah, you know, we get to a particular time in history, Gary, and, and I'm talking about the early 200s, where we have very, very astute great early church writer, not church father, church writer, Tertullian, who will begin talking about the holy sacrifice of the Mass being offered for departed. But here's an incredible thing. He begins to talk about the Mass being offered for the, the departed on their birthdays. And he then begins to say, we offer, and this is in his On the Crown, we offer sacrifices for the dead on their birthday anniversaries. He then notes, noting how the earthly death was merely a passing over into the eternal abode of heaven. Tertullian was really clear the soul could benefit from these prayers. And he then notes that, and each year on the anniversary of his death, the sacrifice is offered. So it's really important because he then, he gives this indication that throughout his tenure in the church, remember he was one of the very first and most vocal apologists sadly, formally left the faith later in life. But early on in his early days of orthodoxy, he was a, um, a force to be reckoned with. And he tells us that feast days for the dead were practiced quite often. This is an important factoid, because as we go forward in history, we're going to find as we go to different parts of the world, remember, we're talking about Tertullian, who was a uh, uh, in, in uh, I got a, a brain hiccup there. He was in uh, Carthage. So we're in one part of the world there, and then we go to another part of the world. Um, and in the fourth century, we have an incredible Syriac early father in the great Ephraim, who, by the way, Ephraim is a saint, 
and he is a deacon of the church, and he begins to talk about celebrations of the dead in his time. Ephraim would talk about celebrations of heavenly martyrs, and his comments were incredible. He tells us in his testamentum, go along with me in Psalms and in your prayers and constantly make sacrifices for me. He then tells people, and this is, these are <clears throat> incredible words. He asks people not to bury him with costly perfumes, but to cover him with prayers and to remember him on the 30th day, indicating that the practice of offering up sacrificial prayers for the saints a month after their birth into heaven was a church practice already and an incredibly important one. Now, Gary, I stop and I think, isn't that incredible? Ephraim is noticing that there are people who have passed on to the afterlife and there are loved ones visiting them and taking them flowers, perfumes, and what have you. And Ephraim says, look, hey, uh, shower me with prayers. You know, that is what I need more than anything else. I need prayers. I don't need any kind of costly perfume because I'm not, what good is that going to do me in the afterlife? Rather, I need your prayers. And Gary, I think that those incredible words from Ephraim are massively relevant, even in today's time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, you have the uh, the deepest roots, of course, you have Ephraim, you have Tertullian. And of course, you also, although it's it's not explicit about when they, you know, whether there's a special celebration on a particular date, but I mean, you have the veneration of the relics of the martyrs as well, yep. which you, it, it doesn't take that big of a leap of imagination to, to know that obviously they would do something to honor the martyrs on the day of their martyrdom, right? Yeah, yeah, no, no doubt. And, and Gary, you do bring up a very good point there because very early on already in the apostolic era, particularly in the writing, the martyrdom of Polycarp, we know already that the martyrs were honored, they were venerating, their relics were taken up. And of course, we get this directly from Old Testament Jewish practices. So you've got it very early on in church history as well. You find it in the biblical Old Testament, then you find it in early apostolic era. So I think you bring up a great point there. If the bones of the relics of the martyrs are being given honor, that is an incredible example as well, and a testimony to the honor and the incredible veneration given to the saints early on. Now, now remember, we're talking about, we're very early on in history. We're in the 200s and we're in the 300s, and we're reading about martyrs being given honor. But eventually, you have to stop and think, Gary, as you know very well, early in church history, the early Christians were being martyred left and right. In the apostolic era, in the biblical era, they were in danger of death every day. That is why Paul in the Corinthian letter is pretty much just smacking them upside the head and telling them, hey, I I'm stuck feeding you like little babies. You're not growing the faith. And judgment day is coming. He means the end of their life. They're being martyred and killed every day. And Gary, who would know better than Paul, right? He was one of the ones originally killing them. So he knows, hey, we're being killed and martyred every day. And we realize that it isn't till later in church history, the fourth century, that Christianity after the Edict of Milan is legalized. But then there's also another persecution period after the legalization, after the Edict of Milan. So they're being martyred, and eventually you reach a time where 
what Tertullian and Ephraim are putting forth can no longer really logically work. What do we mean by that? We mean there are so many that have died that we've run out of days to honor particular martyrs. We've run out of them. Uh, and eventually you get to the time of the great St. John Chrysostom, who then notes about a festival for all saints. We've gotten to the time where it's virtually impossible to have particular feast days at that time. So to make it much simpler, he begins to talk about a feast for all the saints in the world to have been martyred. But he will then go on to note that not only those that have been murdered, but all of the saints in general. And he then tells you, it's very, very important. He says, martyrdom can be achieved even today through despising luxury, suppressing desire and giving to the poor. But this is an incredibly early witness and an important one, Gary, because as you know very well, the great St. John Chrysostomus, one of the greatest Greek fathers ever, is recording for us at his particular time in history that not only in his area where he lives, but all over the world, there are now festivals that have been put into place where the early Christians are celebrating all of the saints in the world, not only those that have been martyred, because remember, before that, it was very common to only have the feast days for saints who were martyred, because very often, that was how they were going to die. They were going to get killed. But as history goes on, and more and more Christianity is able to be, the Christians are able to worship openly without having to worry about being murdered, we realize this needs to be opened up to all the saints in the world. And we have that very early on in John Chrysostom. The only unfortunate thing, he doesn't give us an actual date. But that really doesn't matter because the very emphasis and the roots are right there. And it shows us that having a feast, a festival of all saints was incredibly early. Yeah, yeah, very good. Yeah, so it's, you know, it's deeply rooted in the sense that it, you can really trace it back about as far as you can go. You know, oh, I yeah. mean, you have the seeds right there in the New Testament. And then uh, you start seeing the, the honoring martyrs. It's then honoring martyrs on specific dates. And uh, and then from there, you know, it, it just grows and grows. Uh, so the roots yeah. go way, way back. Oh, yeah. Way, way back. Very early on. And. As we promised the audience in part two, we are going to get to finally when we reach a time in history where there are particular dates being given for this festival. But really the incredible thing, as you pointed out, Gary, is we look in early history, and this is very early on, and we talked about Ephraim earlier. Gregory of Nyssa tells us that after the death of Ephraim, that he was most assuredly assisting at the divine altar and before the prince of life with the angels praised in the most holy trinity and he then says remember us all and obtain for us the pardon of sins this is incredible there's another incredible thing that we didn't read earlier we're going to return for a moment to the great ephraim because what ephraim does in his testamentum is incredible and i love this and i i remember a few years back when i found this quote i i um I verified it with a top Syriac scholar in the world, Dr. Brock, who is the top, top expert on Ephraim. And he, he indicated for me, he said, that is a very rarely used text of Ephraim. 
but that is a genuine text of Ephraim that truly is his. And I asked him, Dr. Brock, why do we rarely hear about this text of Ephraim? And he says it was very likely penned towards the end of his life, where a lot of these texts really were trapped in a foreign language for a very long time. So to find it in English, in an English translation, was hard for a very long time. It was prevalent for many years in, in old German. But I looked at that old German translation. That was It was very, very difficult to extrapolate even what was being said there. But Ephraim does an incredible thing. He will make a connection to 2 Maccabees 12, which is incredible. And he will quote it. Now, we all know, what are we talking about in 2 Maccabees 12? Let me read it uh, real quickly for the audience. 2 Maccabees 12.45 says, And because he considered, Judas Maccabeus, those who had fallen asleep, they had died, in godliness, had great grace laid up upon, uh, laid upon for them. It is therefore a holy and wholesome thought to pray for the dead, that they may be freed from their sins. Now, we're hearing about the prayer for the departed. Ephraim will then tell us, if also the sons of Mathathias, who celebrated their feasts in figure only, could cleanse those from guilt by their offerings who fell in battle, how much more shall the priests of Christ aid the dead by their sacrifices and prayers? That is incredible, isn't it? I mean, yeah. I'm blown away, and there's much more. When we come back from the other side of the break, we're going to unpack that. And, and that truly is incredible because he talks about feasts in figure. That's incredible. Yeah, beautiful. Well, hey, we're chatting uh, with William Albrecht at com about Halloween and the roots of All Saints Day. A lot more to come after the break. You don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with William Albrecht, talking about All Saints Eve and All Saints Day and its development throughout time. And William, when we're closing out the last segment, you brought up the great St. Ephraim and, um, you know, this little-known work. By the way, what's the title of the work that you're quoting with that mentions 2 Maccabees? Now, he has, and here's the important thing, he has multiple works that are called testamentum. This would be his in-testamentum. Now, people may have a little bit trouble finding it, but I would recommend they Google Ephraim in-testamentum and then put Dr. Brock. You can find a copy of this book in English. Unfortunately, it's not on Google, but there's a copy of the book where they can purchase, I believe, on Amazon or on the Gorgeous Press, and they'll find the whole text there. Uh, it is a very difficult to find text, but Gary, incredibly important because we're talking about 2 Maccabees 12, prayer for the dead, and incredibly relevant that he will connect that to saying, well, look, they celebrated feasts in figure. Well, how much more so the priests of Christ? How much Better can the priests of Christ aid the dead by their sacrifices and prayer? Gary, I think those are pretty powerful words. Oh, yeah. Yeah, those are huge. It's especially yeah. tying it with our favorite passage of Second Maccabees. Oh, yeah. Prayers for the dead. Without uh, a so, doubt. Yeah, lots of important implications from that one passage in uh, St. Ephraim. No doubt about that. And, and, and there's more in Ephraim we find in his, in his Carmina and Isabina. 
that he will talk about cease for the martyrs of all of the earth. But, you know, it's abundantly clear when we begin to read that the festivals for all the dead were very common in the early church. And we've seen it multiple times already. The great uh, St. John Chrysostom, the great Ephraim, they show us that this was already a model very early on. And I love how we're going through church history, and this is, this is already built into the church. And by the time we get to the 5th century, uh, right, we're, we're very close to what many scholars like to dub the golden patristic era. We encounter the great St. Maximus of Turin. And in his, we encounter a very interesting thing. In his 81st homily, <clears throat> Maximus will talk about honoring all of the martyrs, the departed that have passed on into new lives in Christ. But he doesn't limit it only to martyrs. We'll read, and we read about his desire that prayers would be lifted up for the martyrs. And then he says, and not only the martyrs, but and the departed brothers and sisters in the faith. He calls this event a celebration, giving absolutely no indication, Gary, that this was a novelty of his time or region. When you read the text, it seems very, very clear. This was already built into the early church, and rightly so. If we have examples of, of the relics of the martyrs being honored very early on in the apostolic era, if the martyrs and the saints being given honor and respect due to them, well, then this shouldn't be shocking that as we go through the 200s, the 300s, the 400s and on, there are feast days giving honor to the great saints in heaven. That really should not strike us as anything odd, but rather that shows a continuity, that continuity coming from the biblical era and going throughout church history. I would say that rather than this being an oddity, this is pretty consistent with what we've seen throughout Christian history. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Yeah, and and I love that picture you paint in terms of testimonies. You got Tertullian, North Africa, you and you have Ephraim in Syria, right? Yeah. I mean, you, you can see this is a belief that's widespread geographically and yeah. very very ancient. Yeah, and and Gary, that is brilliant the way you show that geographically. How do you get around the fact that this feast day, this festival, these festivals are consistent in the early fathers in different parts of the whole world. You know, it's not like all of these areas are right next door to one another. Uh, you know, they're, yeah. some of these areas are far apart from one another. Yet the idea of having a feast day for all saints was present very early on. And even when we traveled and we've gone the two, the three, the four, the now we're, we're going to the 500s, we're in the 6th century, and we encounter one of my favorite fathers of all, the great St. Romanos the Melodist. He goes by a number of names, Romanos the hymn, hymn, hymnographer, or Romanos the Melodist. Why does he get called that? Of course, we know because he wrote very much about um, our Lord and about Holy Mary, and he wrote in a style that was poetic poetic prose as a melodist would have written and he does talk about a universal feast of all the saints and martyrs of the world and he tells us something incredible he says everyone around the globe would gather for the festival he says having gathered from every city and being our compatriots they came out from all over the world 
and having take us from, taken us from the world and have made us participants in the feast, it truly is incredible, amazing, because then he tells us that the festival is not only for the martyrs, but he says this, let us celebrate a sacred feast for the things on earth had become heaven, the lights among the firmament, the martyrs among the multitudes have shone upon the church and enlightened the whole world that David might therefore say with us that your lightning has shone upon the earth, O merciful one. And then he tells us, uh, he says, Romanos begins to number the martyrs with all the faithful in the church. He continues the work by talking of the, about the blood of the martyrs, but he also says they have now become your saints, O Lord. Your word alone made the saints follow you, O Lord. But the incredible thing about this, Gary, is notice what he says. Let us celebrate the sacred feast. But he says, having gathered, gathered from every city, being our compatriots, they came out from all over the world. Now, he's using that language to show the universality of celebrating a feast day dedicated to all saints. That is very, very powerful language. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so uh, here you have a universal feast, you know. Yep. Um, uh, again, you know, that, that corresponds to what you laid out earlier, right? Because yep. you had a wide geographical uh, attestment, you know, various testimonies pointing in that direction. It, yep. it makes sense that by the time you get to what you said, the 5th century, then yep. there, it becomes an established feast. No doubt, Gary. And, and I want to give a little teaser for the audience. Um, in part two, we're gonna, we are going to unveil a lot. We're going to debunk the idea that the jack-o'-lantern is demonic. We're going to debunk the idea that trick-or-treating is demonic. We're going to arrive in church history and show the particular time when this date became a fixed date in the church. And as you know very well, Gary, when I do any kind of work, I'm a nerd just like you. I like to look for a paper trail. I like to go to first-hand source material, and I did a lot of this heavy work for the audience. I went to the excuse me to, to the Patrologia. I went to the early fathers. I went to where I could verify everything to make sure all of the evidence being shared with your incredible audience is rock solid. And Gary, I truly think that they're going to really, really love it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so. Uh, it, that's going to be something to definitely look forward to. And, of course, tomorrow is All Saints Day. So yeah. you're going to be back on the show, and uh, we're going to pick up the thread that we left off today and, you know, really start um, not only establishing the, the bona fides of the feast, but also, like you said, debunking a lot of the distortions and, and yeah. misinformation that's floating out there as well. And You know, Gary, I think that that really is important because today— People at times may think, Gary, they may think, well, you know what, uh, you know, evangelicals are really the only ones that avoid Halloween because of the implications of, of the demonic and how it's been distorted. But that is not the case. A lot of very good Catholics are confused as well. A lot of them don't know better. And to be very fair, uh, you know, I, when I was an evangelical, I didn't know better either. And I would love for our fellow Catholic brethren, sisters, to really realize, okay, well, there's a Christian side to this, and we're going to debunk the idea that all of this is demonic. We're going to debunk the idea that this has its origins in the satanic movement. A lot of people will also tell you, okay, well, 
whatever you want to talk about, the 31st of October, the 1st of November, these dates, all of them, they originate within paganism, within satanic cults. We are going to debunk that. We're going to show that when we look at the historical paper trail, there is no evidence of that. Rather, there is evidence of the demonic cults and the satanic yet again trying to ape the Christians and rip off and turn what are holy festivals into dark festivals. But we know that Christ is the light of the world, and we will not allow them to distort the truth and take away from us things that we know are good inherently. Right. Yeah, yeah, this is like something akin to, uh, spoiler alert, but, you know, the idea that Christmas, the, the Feast of Christmas was established to displace uh, uh, the pagan uh, f- festival of Sol Invictus, right? Right, right, you're correct. And it actually, it turns out historically it's the other way around, right? <laughs> no doubt, and, and you know, we're, we're reminded of the words of Justin the Martyr, who at his time, right in the 100s, is like, you know, shocked that the, the pagans are ripping off all of these things from the Christians, and if they were ripping them off that early in history, we shouldn't be surprised that they've continued the trend today. Yep, absolutely. Well, William, hey, we're already at the end of our show, and I always want to have a couple of minutes just to talk about what stuff you're you're uh, involved with and how people can get a hold of uh, your books and other things as well. Yeah, they can find a lot of them over there on Amazon.com, and they can check out everything that I am working on. Go over to patristicpillars.com. Now, that is a mouthful. They can go to earlychurchfathers.com as well. They're going to find everything that I'm working on, my blog, books, articles, debates, which, by the way, hope your audience pray for me. I have a debate today. Later on today, I'm going to be debating against the idea that Scripture alone is the rule of faith for the church. What better day to defend? There is It can't be a better day to defend the beauty of the Catholic faith. I hope your audience prays for me today. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Who are you debating, by the way? I I will be debating Protestant theologian and apologist John Cranman, who uh, is of un, he's from the very popular show Unbelievable of Unbelievable Fame. So I'm very much looking forward to that discussion. Very scholarly and nice gentleman. I hope we have a lot of light rather than heat and a lot of love today rather than any kind of hostility. Absolutely. Well, William, hey, thank you so much for coming on the show. We appreciate it. I had a great time, Gary. Can't wait to be back with you tomorrow. All right. Yeah, and we could get a follow-up on how the debate goes as well. Amen. All right. Yeah, William Albrecht, PatristicPillars.com. Check it out, folks. And, wow, you know, again, whenever William's on the show, just the show flies. And uh, But you don't have to fear because Terry and Jesse will soon be here. With the Terry and Justice Show, thanks so much for listening and watching. And we'll be back, God willing, tomorrow. Everybody have a great